0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Okay. Shall we begin?
1: Shalom.
0: Shalom, Rabtwi, Rukhaba.
1: Your feminine saying. Sameah. Sameah, my dimness in her.
0: He was my name is Sason.
1: My name is Sasan. Amen.
0: So what do you want to do, Rav Avi? Do you want to wait a bit, or do you want to?
1: Um, should we give it like a minute, maybe?
0: We can do whatever it is that you wish.
1: Yeah, maybe just a minute, and we can.
0: You're in charge. All right. Does everybody have the bat? I'm
1: gonna try to post it. Let's see. Um, we posted it on the WhatsApp group, um, but I'm not sure you if. Can put it on. on
0: the chat if you want. I don't know. Is there a link to it, or is it just a PDF?
1: Just a PDF. I'm not sure how exactly. Let's put it on the chat.
0: The only thing that you can do is if you can put it somewhere where the <coughs> um, I can probably send a link to it. I can send a link to it. If I, if I, um, let me see if I put it on the Dropbox, I can put a link to it on Dropbox. Give me two seconds and I'll do that. Two seconds. Mm. Okay. Okay should do this. Move the file to mm-hmm. mm, Here we go. Move that here. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, I think we can start now, um, yeah, okay, Moet marach, uh, everybody, welcome to week 16, we're all excited to start this new series with Rav Doek, um, we'll be going through some of the Teshuvot, um, I think it will be every other week, um, and uh, we will make you aware, but I think it's going to be on Tuesdays, Rabbi. Is that is that yeah, correct? We're
2: have yeah. On from so,
1: I've just
0: just to say, I've just put the link to the Teshuvah, the PDF of the in the chat. So you can click on that. It should come up. Mahila.
1: Yeah. So we, we will let you know on the group. Don't worry about it. But um, it, most weeks will be on Wednesdays as usual. But I think this, this series with Rabbi Dweck, we'll move to Tuesdays. Um, I think today we'll be starting with Teshuvah from HaHam HaIm David Halevi, um, I'm sure will be fascinating, and Rav Dweck can tell us more about it. Uh, just one announcement, um, I, I think all our Chaburots are recorded and we're gonna have them all on our YouTube page. Um, we'll send the link on the group and, um, it, you know, I think it may already be up, but you know, don't worry about it, we'll we'll put it up and make sure it's uh, available for everyone to see. Um, and I think that's pretty much it. Uh, it's great to have you again with us, Rav. Uh,
0: Honor and pleasure. Thank you, Ravavi, and um, thank you everyone for joining. Very good to see you all. Those of you who I can see, and those of you whose names I see only, Rufim Abayim. Um, what we're going to be doing tonight is a Tishuba. Before we get into the Tishuba, I want to I want to kind of explain the concept behind the series. And I see that Ohad Fadida is here because I was going to mention that you know Ohad had asked me. You know, how do you, how does a person find out, you know, what this Faradi approach is, you know, and I said to him, uh, you have to read what they write, (laughs) the more that you read what they write, the more you learn what it is that they say, and you will have a sense of what the approach is because much of you know the approach when I talk about the approach what is the approach. Uh, one could say very many things about it, but the reality is that if we were to talk about it in the most basic and succinct terms, which is what I'm going to do, because we don't have time to go into it in detail, we are going to see what Rabbi haim David Alevi speaks about with regards to a specific aspect of it. It is an approach that recognizes that the Torah is a framework for our lives in, in the real world, and that it is meant to take that into consideration, right? More than take it into consideration, it is meant to be the template through which we live our lives. And that means that, um, as Hacham of used to say to me all the time, the Torah and the Torah, it says, v'haibahim, that you have to live by the Torah. And he says, v'haibahim means that what we have to do is make it, make Torah as, and life as accessible and livable and as possible for Klal Israel, And uh, Harambam writes, and we're gonna actually read this Teshubah together in this series. It's not even a Teshubah, it's a letter that Harambam writes to, to Hachamim. Uh, and he says that a person, that a Rav has to allow everything that is possible to allow for the people so that they should not be restricted and be oppressed through the Torah. And the idea behind that is that Torah is meant to enliven our lives, not to restrict our lives. And any of the restrictions that Torah puts in are there in order to be able to create a life that is most viable. And so even the hachamim themselves will say things like, lo dai Torah. It's not enough what the Torah prohibited to you. You have to add other things to prohibit onto you. And that is at least in terms of the halachic framework. So when I say the Sephardi approach, the pragmatic, life-affirming, life-enhancing uh, embrace of HaKadosh Baruch's world is at, the, is at the foundations of it, right? So what can we do not only in order to be able to survive, but in order to thrive, and for that matter, to experience the joie de vivre of life itself through our, our involvement in Torah and HaKadosh Baruch's world? Why is that so important? It is important because, not because we are here to enjoy life. It is important because through those joyful experiences, through those myriad experiences, whether they're joyful or not, but they are myriad experiences of life, we come to know Mishia Amar Bi HaOlam. We come to know the one who spoke and created the world, otherwise known as HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It is through his world that we come to know him. And so that is at the bedrock of it. So what we're going to do in this series is we're going to look at various tishubot from various hachamim who all live within this framework and have dedicated their Torah to surviving and existing and being learned and, and lived in this framework. Rabbi Haim David Halevi is an amazing start to this. Rabbi Haim David Halevi was best known for being the, the Sephardic chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. Um, and he was, you know, immovable when he became the Sephardic Reef chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. He was a force. He was a force. Before that, he was the chief rabbi of Rishon et Zion, of the city of Rishon et Zion. But most important, he was the talmid muvhak of Hacham Zion Uziel. Zion Uziel. We've heard in our series, in our in our habura, you know, discussion about Rishon Uziel. Uh, Professor Tzvi Zohar spoke a great deal about. It. We we studied in depth some of his maamarim, some of the things that he's written. Um, and, and he was very much about the, the, the approach that, I, that I've described in the opening. So what we're going to do here with Rabbi Haim David Halevi is we're going to get a taste of him. right? We're going to get a taste of who he was and what he, and what he taught and his approach to life. And what we're going to be looking at tonight is his treatment of the nature of halakha, specifically with regards to the capacity for halakha to be precisely what it sounds like walkable, as in terms of halach, right? To be able to move, to be able to move through life with us, to be able to bring us to our destination. And it is very important, I, you know, I'll mention as an introduction to this, right? The Ram be Moshe Haim Luzato writes, um, another Western Sfaradi that's important for us to know, although, you know, everyone has their own uniqueness, but be Moshe Haim Luzato, he writes um, in his introduction to the Mesilat Sharim. Uh, that is not, and this is something that, by the way, I want to do also in our Habura. I want to study the introduction to the Misilat Yasharim, not the classic one that everybody knows. Machon Ofek printed in Misilat Yasharim. And by the way, by the way, the Misilat yusharim, there's two versions of Misilat Yasharim, right? There's a version that everybody knows, which is what's called the chapter version, which is just basically writing out of the ideas. And then there is a dialogue version. Uh, that the, that Ramchal wrote, and where there is a discussion between a Hasid and a Hacham. Uh, and that brings out the entire development of the but there's a very huge difference between the chapter version and the dialogue version. And the major difference is that in the dialogue version, there is an elaborate introduction that doesn't exist in the chapter version. And that puts out such important fundamentals and principles in terms of how it is that we are meant to relate to our lives, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to the Torah, that is uh, unmatched anywhere. And I wanted to study that as well in the Habura. And we will, Bezrat Hashem. We have much time and we will get to it. And I think it's very important. What I wanted to say about it is that the only version, the only version of the Mesilat Yesharim that we have in the handwriting of the Ramchal himself, the Tav Yado Yad Kocho, is the dialogue version, not the chapter version. That we know he wrote, right? We know he wrote, um, and we're not surprised that he wrote it in dialogue version. He wrote much in dialogue uh, um, framework, right? But we also know that the Ramhal was a playwright. He wrote three morality plays in his time. And so he was very much about the, you know, the back and forth and dialogue between characters, so to speak. And so he uses that mode in order to be able to put out his ideas. And why am I telling you about the Ram Because Ram Han, that introduction says something very important. He says, if the goal was simply to insert humans into a world so that they would be able to have opportunities to gain merit or to do the opposite and you know, balance those things out and work their lives out, there's no need for history. Meaning what? There's no need for a, de- a world that develops and moves and changes. You know, keep it the same. You know the playing field, put people in and people out. You know, people live and die. They have the opportunities to build their lives, and that's it. What is it with the development of history, the movements of technology, the, the, the advancements of humanity? We're going somewhere, right? There's a direction that the world is moving in. And that is also important to be able to understand. And that's this idea that. The world and the Torah itself is meant to be embedded in that developing system, right? And to be able to come along with us in that system. And based on that, Rabbi Haim David Hadevi deals with the question of what is halakha, Jewish law, meant to be for us? How are we supposed to relate to it? So if everybody has a bar, we're going to begin and he's writing this really as a response to a question that was posed to him. And we can very clearly see what the question was at the opening. We'll, we'll, we'll have an idea of what it is that he's dealing with. So it, he has, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Koter at the title up here says, right? The need to be innovative, right? To be innovative in halakha, that there is a need. For new, novel responses, expressions, ideas, behaviors in halacha, Right to deal with problems that time brings us. Right, what does it mean that time brings us? The development of time brings us all kinds of things that we don't anticipate, and halacha needs to respond to them. I remember sitting with uh, Rav Asher Weiss Shlit"a, shechir tovim, gaon, the uh, gaon ador, posek ador. He he said. The reality is, is that in a modern Israeli state, there are so many things that come up that Halakha just has not even begun to deal with. That we really need, he says it all, the way he says it all the time, he says, we need the Rambam and the Rashba to be able to be here to respond to the situations that we have. He goes, but we don't have them, so we have to do it. But we have to respond. And there are situations that I mean, nobody that came before us ever had to deal with the likes of things we deal with just in a modern industrial state and they have to be dealt with and if you're not going to be prepared to be mechadesh in halacha to be innovative and nuanced and novel in halacha then everything falls apart so he's dealing with that question the reason he, he's dealing with it is because there was a question posed to him nafshi, that's what the are hayakar who the precious and honored Harabagaon, Gaon, whoever it is, he conceals his name for it to protect the innocent. He says, "Greetings to you." michtav. What does keter stand for? Kavod Torah. Kabod Torah. Torah. I think. No. No. What's the resh? Mm. But good. You had the first two thirds right. Kvod Rabenu, it's a, it's a, or Kvod right? It's a, it's a term of, of respect, right? And Ketar, of course, means crown, so it's a nice little play on the, on the, on the acronym, right? In any case, Michtav Ketar, Mi Yom Shviikis Lev Tavshin Memvav. So you know when this was written to him. Shabakit Guvale Maamari BeHatzafa. You wrote it as a response to my article that I wrote in the Hatsafa journal. Mi Yom Alef Tzivam Tavshin Memhet. Uh, he puts the date, right? According to you, you saw it by accident. <laughs> he makes sure to put, to put that in parentheses. And you showed your astonishment at some of the things that I wrote in my essay or in my article. So here, Rabbi Haim David is saying the same thing that Rav Asher Weiss said that there are problems, difficult problems, Bayot kashot, that come out in our lives that have no uh, uh, solution. It's not a clear, or less, at least a pitron Barur, right? There's no clear outline solution to them uh, that is established clearly in halakha. Or Boteno, for that matter, that our rabbis, right? Or that our rabbis, did not suffice with the halakhot that they were given, yeah, um, and they sought really, in other words, he's saying, I wrote this in my article as well, that they sought and toiled to find new elements of halakha to be able to respond. So too I wrote that even the most recent scholars and postkim authorities in halacha sought to find new ways of responding to situations. I wrote all of that in my essay, and you took issue with all of it, he said. It wasn't that, that my, 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 my conclusion in my essay was, I said in no uncertain terms that it is appropriate to find new ways to look for new solutions that are faithful to halakha, the system of halakha, but clearly are new. The Hadesh Hidushim Hilchatim to bring in new novel approaches to Jewish, to Halacha. And you say, I'm not going to translate Halacha as Jewish law because he's going to explain why we call it Halakha, And it's not an accurate translation. And about all of this, you had problems, he says to the person writing him. He goes, You asked, I mean, would we have any permission? You said. To to move even a hair's breadth from what it is that we received as halacha in our hands? What are you talking about? Innovating halacha. I mean, you know, if it fits exactly what the Johan Aruch has written, then it's not new. And if it doesn't fit what the Johan Aruch has written, who said you're allowed to? You're gonna write something that the Johan Aruch didn't write? That was his ta'anah, right? This is the, whoever's right, the keter, right? That's, that's his ta'anah. So he says, look, I'm going to answer you with love. And he has a play on words over here because teshuvah me'ahava is a concept in Torah, right? What, how do we return to God? How do we do teshuvah for God? Do we do it from fear, or do we do it from ahava? So he's playing on that. And he says, I'm going to respond to you. I'm going to give you a teshubah me'ahava, right? From love. I'm talking to you with love. What is that
1: one?
0: What right, is to the, to the it's, a, it's a humble way of speaking, right? According to the poor level of my knowledge, right? But that's it's used all over the place. He goes, he says to him, that's the truth. I mean, that is the way it's supposed to be. He says, the fact that you say we're not allowed to move an iota from the halacha, you're absolutely right. It's just a question of what you call halacha. What is halacha as far as you're concerned? I do not agree. I simply just don't believe that to find innovative approaches to Circumstances that arise in life using the system of halakha faithfully is a veering from halakha at all. Who said that we're veering? We're not veering from anything. Even if, he says, that whatever our innovation is, as long as it's within the framework of halakha, ends up being a different practice than what we already practice now. Says it explicitly, right? It's a pretty powerful statement. Right. So you have to be Haima Ad- David, Ad- David to say that outright to somebody like this. says, but he says it outright. He goes, he goes, the truth of the matter is, I'm the one who has to be astonished at you, not the other way around. Where have you been? What have you been learning? Basically, is what he says to this to this person. Right? He He goes, How did you forget or miss all of the content of what I wrote? We need everybody to mute, please. How did you miss all of the content of what I wrote in my essay? You maybe skimmed through it and picked out the details that you liked or you had a problem with. You didn't even look at what it is that I wrote. How are you going to answer everything that I wrote that proved what it was that I was saying? No, you don't bother to answer any of that, do you? I proved very clearly. Explicitly. So, for example, The Rabbi Ushua ben Hananiah brought out in the Gemara, a massive hidush What was the massive hidush that he dealt with? It was—it's a—it's an issue just to bring you into the issue. It's an issue talking about pidyon shvuyim, ransom, paying ransom for captives that were taken by the goyim, right? Jewish captives taken by the goyim. There is very clear halacha about how we pay the ransom, when we pay the ransom, under what circumstances we pay the ransom, how much we pay. Yeah, there's there's a very very extensive uh, halacha with regards to that. And what is one of the rules with regards to uh, paying a ransom of a a captive? The Mishnah explicitly says that we do not pay more than the captive's worth. The question is, what is the worth? How do you determine the worth? And so on and so forth. Of course, everybody, you know, in everybody's uh, vernacular, no, there's no worth. Torah gives worth, right? How we deal with the worth and how we calculate is not for our Shiur today. Assume. That there is a an appropriate value to pay for a particular captive that's been taken, and we do not overpay. There's no question about it. We do not overpay. The question is, why don't we overpay? I mean, you're talking about the life of a person over here. Yeah. Why does this? Why is this important? Because unfortunately, it happens, right? I mean, what do we do with Gilad Shalit? Do we pay for him, or do we not pay for him? What? What? To what price? Do we put out in order to be able to get somebody back? Well, we've had issues with this. Not the first time a Jewish person has been taken captive before. Okay, so maybe Gilad Shalit is not something that we can just simply go to the the Mishnah and say, here, it it says right here, this is what you do. Maybe Gilad Shalit was an absolutely new situation. Maybe the state of Israel brings in a new situation. Maybe public news channels bring in new situations. Maybe situations of, of, of terror and so on that was never seen in the world before brings in new situations. Maybe we just can't read a line in the Mishnah and decide what we're going to do with Gilad Shalit. Yeah? Okay. So he's putting out over here, we didn't say what the chidush is of Rabbi Yeshua, But I'm uh, telling you first what the baseline is, right? The mishnah in Gitin says explicitly, it's a mishnah Mefureshet, right? It's clear. We do not overpay for captives. The reason why we don't overpay for captives, says the Gemara, goes into it, is because if we do, then the people who kidnap will keep kidnapping and realize that they can squeeze us for everything that they want. And so unfortunately, we have to make sacrifices. That's another concept. Yes, sometimes you have to make sacrifices, on all levels, in order to be able to ensure the safety of the cloud, of the tzibur. I mean, there's huge issues that apply over here. But in any case, that's the that's the that's the mishnah. What did he? What was he mehadesh? According to Berusha Tosafot in the P'sak of the Aruch, he says she gadol al that. If it happens to be a really smart person, meaning a Tamir hacham, you can pay, you can overpay for a Tamir Hakam. You'll have to do that. And it's a psak in Shohan Aruch. Interestingly, it's not a p'sak in Harambam. Harambam didn't make that innovation. Yeah, he didn't, he wasn't possaic that innovation. But nonetheless, it's brought down and ultimately it's a Pesach and Shahana Rush. It's directly against the stamishna Mishnah doesn't make such exceptions. It says very plainly and clear, clearly and plainly: you do not overpay for, for a ransomed uh captive. That's it. And he says, Shaninu, in podin he says, even according to the Tosafot, who give two reasons for this, right? He says, one, because, you know, a person is, is very intelligent, he'll be as ezer to the entire cloud. The last second, Tosafot gives two reasons. The second reason is, he says, in the time of the Bet HaMikdash, you did not have to worry about what the Mishnah said. Because the circumstances were different. We had our own sovereignty, we had our, our own government, we had, you know, authority and so on and so forth. He says the reality is and even what the Tosafot say is a Chidush gadol, which clearly goes against a very straightforward law in the Mishnah and that is you do not overpay it doesn't give asterisks the Mishnah doesn't give asterisks and say footnotes and say well in this case except in this case except in that case it says a blanket statement you also apparently missed all of the things that I brought from the response of the Radbaz who went out of his way. He went out of his way. What were the what were the circumstances that were new for the Radbaz in Egypt? He was the chief rabbi of Egypt. By the way, the Radbaz Rabbi David Bismara. He lived in the time of Maran of Rabbi, rabbi Yosef Karo in the fifteen hundreds. And before he moved to Sfat, he moved to Tzfat, But before he moved to Sfat, he was the he was a hakham bashi in in Egypt. And when he moved to Sfat, Maran had such kavod for the Radbaz. I mean, the Radbaz literally wrote thousands and thousands of Teshubot. Thousands. Yeah? And when he came to Sfat, he was there. I mean, the Sfat was an unbelievable city at the time. Who's living in Sfat? The Radbaz is living in Sfat. Mar- Maran, Rabbi Yosef Karo, is living in Sfat. The Ari, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, is living in Sfat. Ma'arucho, Rabbi Chaim Vital. Uh, the Maram al-Sheikh. Uh, Rabbi Shlomo al-Kabetz, wrote the Lechadodi. All these guys are living in Sfat together, right? At, the se- at a certain period of time. So the Radbaz comes to Sfat, and Maran, Rabbi Yosef Karo, would not sign a diyun, a deen, in the Beit Deen, without the agreement of the Radbaz. If he didn't get a, a validation or a, a, a verification from the Radbaz and a Pesach deen, Maran wouldn't sign it. So that shows you who the Radbaz was and how highly Maran held him in, in regard. He says, the Radbaz, I, he says, I brought Tishubot for the Radbaz in my essay, showing that he went out of his way to find legal allowances for what? For behaviors of the Jewish population that were against halakha. He saw the whole Tibur is going against Halakha. He went out of his way to be able to find ways to allow for them to do what they were doing because it was too much. Two people were going too out of their way. And instead of saying, listen, we're going to shut it all down, we have to find Minamid Zakut. We have to find some Zikut for them to do what it is to allow them to do what it is that they're doing. Obviously, within reason, obviously there are parameters, obviously there are limits. But if I have an opportunity to be able to be matir to the people what it is that they're doing, then I have to do that. He goes, in that situation, I proved to you that the Radbaz himself found heterim for paying high ransoms for people that were taken captive because they needed to. And again, I'm sorry, I have to point this out, but you, uh, your honor, completely missed all of that. And you're silent. You don't even answer me any of those points that I put clearly into my essay. I'm surprised at you. I mean, if I was going to go on to give you the examples that prove this over and over, there would be no room on the page to write. I mean, we've we've finish all the paper. That's how many examples there are of it. He goes, you know what, but if you'll allow me, I will show you the principles behind it all. I'm going to go through a bit to show you the principles behind it all. And through that, maybe you'll have an idea of why things are that way, that you're obviously misunderstanding. So he continues. He goes, let's start with defining the term." Okay, what is halakha? What does the term mean? He says, Geder halakha, Hu mishorish Let's do a, a bit of a grammar lesson here, right? A bit of a, a you know, a basic language lesson. Halacha comes from the root, Hey, la'medchaf. halakh. And what does halach mean? Horato davar sheholech uba mikodem ve'atsof. Right? Holech means something that goes and comes from one end to another, or from the beginning to the end, right? There's a start and there's a destination, and the halach is how I get from the start to the destination. That's what halach is, right? Which implies very, very clearly that there is a journey that halacha needs to facilitate or address. And what is that? Either it is what has been received by Israel at Sinai, which is the start, and journeys with the nation until today, or it is what Israel actually used to travel with. Right? That's what means. It is the way that they travel. So the halakha is the definition of the way, which means, again, by definition, that it must facilitate journey it must facilitate movement from one place to another as it is explicitly written as it says that that you have to show them the way that they will walk and the deed that they should do skip the parentheses just citing it but the term now, halakha, that comes from hayamim. It, as a result of time passing, got many different definitions, nuanced definitions as to what exactly it is. But what I just explained to you about journey, start and finish, movement, that is the primary meaning. It is the primary concrete meaning of it. דבר שׁהולך ועד In simple and succinct terms, it is something that travels from Sinai to the present day. It moves with the people. Now, Right? Definitely, there is room to ask. I mean, any law really cannot stand for too long a time. That's an understood reality. Because life changes. Things change. The world changes. Circumstances change. So you cannot have a a law that is established unchanging and have it survive in a world that is constantly changing. It's very clear. And indeed a law that was good for its time will not work for a following generation. And what it needs is either a bit of fixing or change. So if that's the case, how is it that our Holy Torah was given to us with all of these laws, righteous laws, straight laws, thousands of years ago, And we're running with them till today. Isn't it astonishing how that works? That the Torah was given to us thousands of years ago, and we are still running with it today, given the principle that I just told you that if things don't respond to change, they die? And by the way, we plan to do this until the end of all the generations. Why should it stop now? I mean, how really did it happen, my friend? That there's some kind of miraculous situation that they were good in those days and they're still good in these days. How how does that happen? It must be that when God gives the Torah, He sees all the generations. And He gave us a Torah that would fit for all generations. that's a huge chidush that Rabbi Chaim David is saying not a huge chidush but it's a huge insight because he's taking something that many many people would not agree with I mean what he wrote over here seems like every you know orthodox religious Jew would agree to right yes God God knows the generations and he was able to give us a book that was to survive the generations it's not a human written book it's a God written book and therefore of course it's going to survive the generations even as the laws stay the same but Rabbi Haim David Al-Avi is saying, but we have to know how. Do we have to know how? He's saying, he's making an assumption. And he's basing the rest of the teshubah on that assumption, that we have to know how. What is the mechanism that allows for the Torah to be able to do this with us? He says, <laughs> He's very practical, right? He says, this is, not, uh, this is not, you know, some mysterious otherworldly uh, phenomenon, right? This is not some metaphysical magic phenomenon that it just happens to be that the laws of the Torah survive the test of time, unmoved. That they're different than any other law. He says rather, the only way, the only way. That this was possible. The only way, listen, he says, the only way this worked was that permission was granted to the scholars of Israel to legislate new law in response to the changes of time and circumstance. Again, he says, only in this merit was the Torah able to survive in Israel. And that gave them the ability to walk in the way of the Torah and the Mitzvah. You hear what he's saying? Does everybody hear this? It's, it's, it's huge. So he's not saying, look, there was some magic miracle that these mitzvot were... says, how did it happen? It gave us laws, which were principles, clear out guidelines as to what we need to do in our lives. And room was given to the hachamim to apply those laws to manifest in new situations. So I'll give you an example. I always give this example. right? It's not that you can rewrite what it is that the Torah wrote. You can't say, you know something, uh, you know, the, the nuclear family is no longer functioning. So we're going to take kabetet avi mecha out of the Torah. That it does not say, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is even more creative than that. What he's saying is is eternal and immovable. The question is, how do we apply that to the current day's circumstances? How do we understand what is Av What is Kavod? How do we apply it? What if a person has adopted parents? Does that include kavod? And what is kavod? What constitutes kavod? Is it what the parents want? Is it what the children want? Is there some kind of mutuality in it? I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments, for goodness sakes. But of course, every single one of the mitzvah, those questions can be asked. And that's his point. That there needs to be room for us to be able to innovate. I'm going, this is blanket, this is very, very, very superficial, this tissue bar. This doesn't go anywhere into detail. It's giving a very superficial overview. But there are, there are levels of what can be tampered with and what can't be, what can be innovated and what can't be. And we will see that as we go along. It's not for tonight, but I do really think that we're going to have to deal with that because that touches on the Halbertal talk that we had before, which a lot of you had questions on, which he was not entirely clear in the way that he... he answered some of the questions because it was already at the end of time and there were some things that have to be have to be explained but more and more it's apparent that this question is a question that we have to deal with so that'll also be part of what it is that we learn as the time goes on so he says look hadugmaotin he because the examples of this are so many he goes I'll just give you a few I'll just give you a few examples that this is what we did and I'm going to start from the earliest times and show you the examples of this he goes, let's look at the in the Torah itself, how that happened, right? To show you, why is he doing this? Because you'll say to him, look, uh, you know, Rabbi Hayim, but we're not in that place anymore, we're not in that time anymore, we're not with those people anymore. That's His point is not that. His point is to show, but the concept was always there. If it wasn't a the concept, then it wouldn't be there. But it was always there. So he's going to show you. He says, Look, we know the story when Moshe Rabin, right? What's the story? There was a korbanot that the Kohanim had to bring as the hinuch for their kihunah. And the two oldest sons of Aharon die. And so they don't eat the hatat. You're supposed to eat the hatat they don't eat the hatat. Aharon decides. Aharon makes his own decision, an executive decision. He's not eating the hatat. Kashir Tzuveti. Moshe says, I, I was commanded to eat the hatat. And what happens? Moshe comes around. Darosh, darash, it says. Moshe came, darosh, darash, Hada, And he sees that Aharon didn't Cuts off Moshe. He was infuriated, Moshe. He goes, it's enough that your two kids died. You're going to now start, you know, defying instructions. And Aharon says to him, he goes, Karauti If I was to carry on as if nothing happened and rejoice, would it be good in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? You gave me a law that was considered a law in particular circumstances. Now the circumstances have changed. And I made a decision to respond to the situation. And what does it say Moshe's response was to that? Vaytav Moshe. <inaudible> Moshe said, okay, oh, you're right. You're right. I hadn't considered that. That's what he gives here. Right? He says, Moshe hanukata mishkan. Got very angry at his brother on the day of the Mechunah Kodesh. Madua basar korban Why did they burn the hatat? They were supposed to eat the hatat. You didn't eat it as I was commanded. Look what happened to me today. My two oldest children died. It's an evil for Israel. Israel's is in mourning, we should carry on in a happy thing like nothing ha- like nothing occurred. <inaudible> could you tell me honestly that's going to be good in God's eyes? <inaudible> it says in the Hachamim explained <inaudible> what was Aaron's point. <inaudible> what he was saying was, if you are you're dealing with a Kochesha <inaudible> because it talks about the sons of Aaron, Dying was Kodashim. He right? says, Bikrovaya Kadesh. Yeah, by the clo- clo- ones closest to me, I have kedusha. So that HaKadosh Baruch took as his Kodesh. I'm going to now and take these things that's going to be Kodesh, the Dorot, and add to that. It was already done. It was something happened today that was essentially the equivalent of this hatat. Now I'm going to sit here and eat the hatat as though I'm doing something that was it eclipses it. He says, look, I mean, basically it's as if he's saying, it's a like talking, yes, yes, you did command us to do this. I mean, I have no doubt that that's what you were commanded by God. But that was for a particular situation. Not for this particular Kodesh, which I'm not supposed to eat when I'm in a state of mourning. Without getting into all the details, he gives he gives an, a, an explanation for him on this. <inaudible> Aharon made a judgment for a local circumstance that was not explicitly put out by Moshe. There was just a clear halakha, that was it. And Aharon made a decision when that halakha should apply and what it shouldn't. <inaudible> Aaron was given a base commandment, a simple commandment without any qualifications. That's what Pistam means. <speaking in Hebrew> but from his own thought, <speaking> in Hidesh, <Hebrew> innovated, <speaking> in <Hebrew> that that command doesn't apply to the koche <speaking in Hebrew> Dorot. Whatever that deals with now. Yeah. <speaking in Hebrew> and Moshe agreed with him when he heard the opinion of Aaron. It says explicitly, Moshe heard and he was fine with it. He was happy with it in his eyes. There are even some that to make it easier or to sweeten it say that Moshe really had heard that before Aharon said it, but he forgot. Yeah, okay. Even if you want to say that, the fact he agreed to Aharon, what was he agreeing to? He wasn't just saying, yeah, Aaron, I heard that, but forgot. He's saying, Aaron, yes, your Svara was correct. You deduced an appropriate reality that you had not known and was not given to you. (laughs) Aaron himself knew nothing about it. He didn't say, look, Aaron, you're right, but you shouldn't have done that. He didn't do that. He said, no, you're right. Clearly you can't get around the fact that Aharon allowed himself to do something that wasn't prescribed in the official law. And after the disaster tragedy that happened to him, he deduced logically that this is what he should do all of this comes to teach us so look what Rabbi David Al-Avi is saying about that episode in the Torah itself he's saying why are we told about that episode we're told I mean there's hundreds of episodes that occurred that we're not told about that episode occurred and we're told about in the Torah says Rabbi David Al-Avi, because we're meant to learn that that is the role of the Chachmei Israel forever like what Harun did anytime the circumstances change it means you have to judge and innovate there's a beautiful uh, you know uh, the opening of Perkei it says it says um, you have to be very careful and, and, and patient pause when you're judging a law Says, and that doesn't mean Badin. It says, Never say, Davarze ra'inu.' If you're judging Allah, never say, Oh, we know this situation. We've seen it already. It says, No. Even if you've seen it once, twice, three times, maybe the fourth time it's different. Look carefully. And that tells us how much it tells us that when certain, you talk about circumstances changing, circumstances are changing more rapidly today than they ever have before in all of history. And and specifically in that time, everybody's digging their heels in and saying we can't change an iota. And it's a terrible mistake. A terrible, not only is it a terrible mistake, it's a lethal mistake, is what Abbihaim David is saying. You do this or die. There's no, there's no options. Od Matsanu, he says, we also find sota and Tanirbi and Mikra. There's three places where halakha actually circumvents the written law of Torah. HaTorah for example, where, we'll show you the place. Torah says, for example, It says about gitim, right? When a person has to divorce. What does it say? You write a sefer and you give it to your wife. That's how you have to divorce her. It's very clear in the pasuk that you have to write a sefer. It would seem from the pasuk, if you don't write a sefer, you can't divorce your wife. What do the hachamim do? They say, well, I mean, there's going to be a problem because it's going to make divorce very difficult. So they say instead, what do they say? Anything that is not tied to the ground, you can write a get on. That's considered sefer. So what do they do here? Did they rewrite the pasuk? No. The circumvented the pasuk. That's literally what what it means. Okefit, okefit means circumvents. And how do they do that? They said when it says sefer, we're we're having a very broad definition of what sefer means. Sefer in this case means anything that you can write on, and isn't tied to the ground. That's, that's stunning. You, you think that you know what people say today is is, is is hair raising and 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 cutting edge? This is this is beyond the pale. I mean, what kind of, you know how broad could it be? And that's why people ask me, I think, you know, when there's a Sanhedrin, we pray every day for the Sanhedrin. We say, right? Three times a day we pray for the Sanhedrin. When we have a Sanhedrin. People say, wow, they're never going to be able to interpret this or they won't be able to interpret that. I go, obviously they haven't seen these things because clearly there were such interpretations. And Rabbi Haim David Alavi is not saying that these interpretations were given at Sinai as an oral law. He's saying that they were innovated. He says, It says, you go and you hunt uh haya you have, to bury the, you have to bury the blood, you have to cover the blood in dirt. That's a halakha. Shem hachaseid dam be'afar. Halakha, Amra, what does halakha say? What is halakha, by the way, when he says halakha? Halakha is, what do we do? I have to tell you a phenomenal... Uh, I'm just saying this off the top of my head. This, this is, I mean, it's recording, but whatever, it's important. Once uh, a Rebetzin, a Rabbanit, called my wife about snirut, and she asked my wife i was just overhearing the conversation and she asked my wife what does your grandfather say about covering you know sleeves and skirts and so on and so forth and my wife answered her she said you want to know what he wrote or what we do and when she said that it wasn't defiant she said what do we in the family do what does my grandmother do? What does my mother do? What do me and my sisters do? What do you want to know what, what's written or do you want to know what we, what we do, what we practice? I don't know what the rest of the conversation was. But the fact that my wife answered that way, there's a recognition that there is, there is difference between the two. And it's not that it defies it. It is an interpretation of it. It's how do we interpret what it is that Saba wrote in the, in the, in the sefer. And why is it an okay interpretation? Because Saba sees everybody walking around and doesn't say a word. As a matter of fact, there's a story my mother-in-law told me about that. Listen to this. So my mother-in-law, I think she was uh, 15, maybe 14, 15 years old, in Yerushalayim. And, my, and, my, and Chacham Ubadiyah was out, you know, wherever he was. And in Bet Israel, Ma'ash And somebody said to him, I saw your daughter today. Bushah, how she was dressed. So the Rav heard that about his oldest daughter, how she was dressed. He came home and he told the Rabbanit, he says, when Adina comes home, immediately I want her to come see me. I want to see her the minute she walks in the door. She said, okay. So my mother-in-law came home and she walks into the, the Rav and the Rav says, why did you change? She said, change. She says, you change your clothes. She says, I didn't change my clothes. This is what I've been wearing all day. He goes, that's what you've been wearing all day? He goes, that's what the man told me? Hamor, what he said. How could he talk about you that way? So there's, there's all, all of these inyanim that occur, and people don't realize that this is the nature of how life runs and how things run. Why am I saying that story? Because Hamor, obviously saw his daughters and his wife and his children and so on, and how it was that they dressed. And if he if he had a problem with anything, he wouldn't say something. And so, so he learned. You can't just take things alone then. So the question when it says halakha, halakha is how do we move with this? How do we, like in English, I would say, how do you run with this, All right? This is how we run. So how, this is what the pasuk says. What does the halakha say about covering the blood? Anything that is fertile soil, you can cover with. That's it. That's how they defined afar. Right it says about the slave when you want to free a slave, or if the slave doesn't want to go free, right? So you pierce his ear with a marzea. What is the marzea? Halakha amra afilu kots afilu is a very specific tool. Does that mean if I don't have that tool, I can't? No, they're saying anything that can make a hole in his ear, even a piece of glass, it works. It's enough. Hadavar matmiya meod says Rabbi Hayim. Rabbi Hayim says it's uh, it's astonishing. How could they say that? Kasher Torah Mal Halutin. The Torah said explicitly, it didn't say something sharp. It used a specific tool. It didn't say on something, write it on something to get. It said katab sefer. How could you say that when the Torah is so explicit that we open it up to all of these things? It's matmi Okay, I can understand when it says sukkah. I don't know what a sukkah is. Sukkah can be a lot of things. It says tevilin. What's tevilin? Tevilin means meditations. What are meditations? Okay, so that I could understand, you know, we interpret. These are not things that are really given up to interpretation. Torah beberur sefer afar marzea afar is not something that lends itself to a hundred different definitions. Certainly not everything that's fertile soil. Tavo halacha musagim. All of a sudden, now halacha is going to start broadening these very succinct and clear terms. The Shema. I mean, for what purpose? Also, halakadosh baruch no ten torah is the one who gave us the written Torah. And he gave us the interpretation of the Torah. He could have written it very explicitly in the Torah. And this is a great line. means if we are honest. If we're going to be straightforward and honest here, Gamzul that also comes to teach us something. That there's this dynamic in the Torah written and the halakha practiced. Halacha cannot be interpreted as the literal meaning of the word. And means the broadening of definitions and concepts is permitted. As long as I can have it within the text, right? I can broaden the text to mean this, it's permitted. And that is why the Halachim teach this in the Torah. Okay? So he says, he continues to say over here, there's a Midrash that seems to show us otherwise. There's a madras that says that Moshe knew everything that every Talmid Hakam was ever going to innovate across the generations. It says in Megillah and in Yerushalmi what does it mean that Milamet Kadosh Baruch Hu Moshe, Dikduke Torah, Sofri, Mumashi Sofri, Matidin, Hadesh? What does it mean that Hakadosh Baruch Hu showed to Moshe, it says in the Gemara, he showed to Moshe every innovation that a Hakam was going to make? So Rabbi Hayim says, well, you can't take it literally what that Midrash says. Of course. Why? You can't say, You can't say that he actually sat down and taught him what every new thing was written, that what Ravosh or Weiss was going to respond to, you know, Hadassah Hospital, or, you know, uh, what's it called? Hospital. What's it called? Right? Right? But what what am I supposed to do with, you know, walking into infrared, uh, you know, detectors so the doors can open? It can't be that that's what he taught him. In order for Moshe to teach that to Israel, I mean, even if he taught that to Moshe, you can't say that he taught it to Moshe to teach that to Israel. That can't be. Why If that's the case, then there's nothing left to, to, to innovate. No, it must be like the Tosfat Yom Tov wrote. And by the way, there are many responses. And also Maharaj Chayuti writes a beautiful explanation of this. What does the Tosfat Yom Tov say? He says, The Tosfat Yom Tov says, he showed it to Moshe. It doesn't say he gave it to Moshe. There's a very big difference or that he taught it to Moshe even. It says Hir'ahu, he showed him. Look what's going to happen to the Torah later on. That's all. He didn't sit down and learn Tshuvot of Weiss with Moshe (laughs) Rabenu. Because if it would have said that he taught this to Moshe or gave it over to Moshe, it would require that Moshe teach it to Israel because Akadosh never taught any Torah to Moshe that Moshe was allowed to keep for himself. The whole goal of the whole job of Moshe was to teach whatever Akadosh taught him to the people. And he would need to give it to Yahushua. Because <laughs> it says Moshe gave to Israel <laughs> When it says he showed him, means he showed him. He didn't give it to him. <laughs> it's like when a person says, Here, I'm going to show you this, but I'm, it's not, I'm not giving it to you. You can take a look at it, but you can't have it. <laughs> he says, I like that what the Tov says. <inaudible> so we can understand why it was that Moshe, the Rakadosh who showed Moshe what was going to be the Hidushim in the later generations. I mean, what would the point be if it's not to teach it? korhenu. We have to say against our will, right? We're we're forced. To, it's another way of saying we're forced to say. Moshe Rabbeinu Davarze that al korhenu al Moshe Rabbeinu Davarze Israel, Shimlochin Lohaya al Davarze li'datenu. It must be that Moshe told Israel that. That what? A kadosh baruch hu showed me everything that was going to be Midhadesh. Because if Moshe didn't tell that to Israel, how do we know? That's a very powerful statement. He's saying, I mean, you know, if you're saying what's true—that everything that was ever mehudash was taught to Israel by Moshe—then it means that Moshe also had to teach them that. Because otherwise, how do they know that? That that's what happened to him. That that was the experience at R.C. with him and God. It was to hint to Israel. To the contrary, it was to hint to them the permission they have to innovate. By the very fact that Moshe said to Bnei Israel, I was shown by God everything that everyone was going to innovate, means that there was going to be room for people to innovate, obviously. You can't say that I'm going to show you everything i going to innovate and by that nobody's going to innovate. Then what he showed him was false. is the next section means the 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 plasticity of halakha right the adaptability of halakha that's what gamish means it is a terrible mistake for people to think that halacha is frozen and that one cannot veer from what's written right or left. <speaking in Hebrew> to the contrary. <speaking in Hebrew> there is no plasticity like the plasticity of Halakha. You, who, you can imagine somebody writing this today. They That's absolutely mind boggling. How brave Rabbi Haim David Adel-Abi was. How powerful. Sheken Yachol or Israel, goes, I'll tell you how plastic it is. A halachic authority in Israel can. It is absolutely possible that one posek can answer an identical question from two different people, and for one person to say it's tarif and for another person to say it's kasher. Like anybody who teaches knows, There's a lot more to be said about that, but that's the reality. And what does that mean? Obviously, it means that the context within which the question is being asked is everything. That's another thing that Hacham taught us. He said to me after I got semicha, he said, he said, just make sure that you listen to the question. Because the way a question is asked, who asks it, when it's asked, under which circumstances it's asked, is what defines the nature of the question. And therefore the nature of the answer. And it's very important. Again, he says, RAK, how many times he says RAK here? So the third time he says, It is only because of that. There's nothing else, according to Rabbi Haim David. It is only because of the plastic nature, the adaptable nature of Halacha. It is only as a result of the massive amounts of Hidush that have happened over the generations in Torah itself that we have been able to walk in the path of Torah. Le le hadish. Where am I? Al fisherim for thousands of years. Bim yamod laim lechachmed dorenu omets libam lehadish. And if the the chachamim of our generation are brave enough to innovate in halacha, hidusha alachal al torah according to the truth of, of torah itself, bene in full faithfulness to the system and to the endeavor, legufei alachak tuvah mesorat to the actual laws that are written. So that when it says sefer, I don't say no. We don't need that anymore. Nobody ever said that. Nobody said we don't need a sefer anymore. What they said is we're going to broaden what sefer means. We can't pretend that the mitzvah is not the mitzvah, as long as we're completely faithful. And this, by the way, is a very big difference uh, between the traditional approach halakha and reform approaches, right? That's the that's an element of the reformation that Rabbi Haim David Levi would not agree to to say that mitzvot, entire mitzvot of the Torah, don't apply today anymore. That he would never say. Okay. As long as we keep innovating, and as long as we keep responding to changes in circumstances of life and and times, the halacha will continue to be the way of Am Yisrael until the end of all generations. But if we don't, if we don't innovate, if we don't respond, if we don't adjust, well, he said enough here to be able to understand what what the implications are. I want to bless you, you and all that's in your tent, the tent of the straight, should be blessed. It's pretty powerful. So there you have it, our first halacha, our first teshubah. digest, review. Read and um, I guess we can have what I'll do 10 minutes of questions if people want to stay. If anybody has.
2: Mm.
0: No. Did I mute everybody? Are you unmuted? I
1: oh, have uh, one question, which perhaps okay. um, something we've discussed in previous Kaburot, um, but I think it's it's relevant to the the teshuva that we did, which is the um, how does it fit in? Um, it's not really a question, but maybe you can expand on it. Um, the the Gemara where it speaks about Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, sort of being transported in time to to this future class of Rabbi Akiva and sort of, um, you know, seeing the, the, and then he, you know, he's saying what's going on here. He gets really
0: upset. Yeah. Yeah. So the story that you're referring to is that Moshe is taken to the class of Rabbi Akiva and he hears Rabbi Akiva talking. He doesn't understand the word of what Rabbi Akiva is saying. I mean, obviously, Rabbi Akiva is not talking astrophysics. He's teaching Torah. But Moshe doesn't understand it. And he gets upset. And not only does he not understand it, they seat people, right, in the yeshiva of Rabbi Akiva, based on merit. And they seat Moshe in the eighth row. Because they test him when he comes into the fashion. <laughs> they put him not in the first row, they put him in the eighth row. There's a girsan in the kubitz, that they put him in the 18th row. And and there, uh, you know, Rabbi Akiva is teaching and Moshe doesn't understand. And then all of a sudden the student raises his hand and says, Rabinu. So Rabbi Akiva, Mina'in Lachda goes, How do you know this? And Rabbi Akiva says, Halachal Moshe mi Sinai. It's a halachal to Moshe from Sinai. But the amazing thing is, you would think that at that point, Moshe would get up and say, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't hear that at Sinai. It's a lie. What does it say? It says, Moshe heard that. He's like, Oh, okay. Okay. No problem. So clearly what the Gemara is referring to, what the Gemara is teaching us, is that Moshe didn't need to understand all of, it's exactly supportive of what it's saying. Moshe didn't understand all the developments. I don't know what Rabbi Akiba was talking about, but as long as he knew that it came from his Torah, well, wonderful. It's beautiful. As I, look, I don't know all of the permutations of my Torah. My Torah is multifaceted. I mean, it has tremendous principles. Uh, who knows what a person can bring from that? As long as you're telling me that what you're talking about came from my Torah. It's Karradato. And it's a beautiful Gemara because he doesn't get up in protest and says, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not Halachal Moshe Bissina. I know." okay, it's beautiful. As long as it's Halakha Moshe Bissina. Anything else?
2: Yeah, Michael. All right. Um, so this is, so I feel like a novice here. It's my first, uh, Welcome. By, so, Welcome. thank you. So I guess, I guess I'm curious, um, you've said, this is brave. Um, how exemplary is this, uh, is this con- is this still considered, uh, brave and a bit, um, out there on the periphery or is considered much, much, much more brave today than it was when he wrote it, he wrote this in the eighties. Um, and, um, and then, so so brave, That's but still opinion. within... That's my opinion, yeah. yeah. But within, still, still would be accepted or uh, as kind of... Um, if I took the, the name off of this, mm.
0: and I presented this simply as a piece of scholarship, it would be, I mean, the likelihood would be, if, if somebody, for example, put this out with my name on it, right, there would be a whole nother, there would be a whole nother upheaval. <laughs> so then, question two because right at the beginning and that's not describe, to say that i'm yeah in other words there is something to be said for the level of scholarship of Rabbi haim david Al-Aviv, right i mean he was known to be he was the chief rabbi of tel aviv you know he wasn't uh he wasn't a you know a simple a simple man i'm saying that there's something to be said for the fact that he said this but as a concept standalone concept on its own this is not something that somebody would read and say okay this is this is just traditional halakha this is something that uh, many, many Orthodox Jews would read, even Orthodox rabbis, even Orthodox Poskim would read and say that this, is, this this borders on heresy, maybe not heresy, but a de- a borders on, or borders on, you know, terribly, being terribly, terribly dangerous and misguided.
2: Okay, so then Link, so Link's question. So right at the beginning, you described, you said you position this as uh, we learn what a Sephardi approach to halakha is by looking at these Tashibot and we said, paragraph one of this was um, that Halacha is what we that allows uh, Am Yisrael to yeah. and um, so I'm just curious um, how much of this is um, a Sephardi thought, um, which is maybe extensible to the Sephardi saf- world, or and how different is it from uh, Ashkenazi. So this, That's a very this sort of... good
0: question. I appreciate your mm. question. That is a very good question. Is this a, a uniquely Sephardic approach? I mean, it can't be because he's starting from Moshe, right? And he's talking about the Gemara. And he's talking about, I mean, if it were uniquely Sephardic, then all he would do is talk about the local Sephardi posting. But he doesn't do that. It is Sephardi in the sense that the Sephardim highlight. This aspect of Torah all the time. And when I say Sfaradim, I don't mean all Sfaradim, by the way. Right? When we talk about Sfaradim in the very broad vernacular, there are different a- aspects of Sfaradim. That's why we talk about this as being a Western Sfaradi approach, for lack of a better term, right? There are different traditions. As you heard from Professor Halbertal, right? The, the Resh Glutav Babel was not the same kind of approach as Harambam and the, the Torah Sfarad. It just wasn't the same. They had very different approaches to it. And those lines within Sephardi Jewry are still manifest till today. That you'll find differences between them. So this is a particular, um, it's highlighted by a group, right? Among Sephardim that is old and recognized, but it's not innovated by them. And it's not unique to them. There are Ishkenazim that would agree to this. There's no question about it. What I say when I talk about Sephardi approach, and again, I thank you for the question because it helps to clarify, is that this aspect of Torah, which is well rooted and documented, is what is highlighted and used as a cardinal uh, philosophical legal concept in their approach to Torah and and Jewish law? Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. Yep. Okay.
0: Whereas others may either negate it or kind of keep it. At the you know at the at the in the darker corners right not to bring it out into the light don't talk about it yeah okay last question uh, Ellie show me
2: yes um, so thank you very much um, so the the principle that he's bringing up here obviously is very uh, important and very uh, meaningful as an
0: abstract principle it's not um, abstract. He just gave we so gave you pl- practical examples throughout the generations.
2: Right, so that's exactly so exactly the question I was about to ask. Um, so these examples that he gives, I would
0: assume, or maybe I'm wrong, but I would assume that he wouldn't himself be willing. Oh, to, absolutely, he would. Would like would he be he willing? There's nine to, volumes of Teshuvot, and where he and next week, by the way, we're doing a Teshuvah on Achamat Lub, Abadi, which talks about. Um, dishwashers and are right, you allowed right. to use meat and milk in the same dishwasher right which of course saying it, was not discussed in the gemara yeah for sure but i'm saying to come and reinterpret the word afav, or right. to reinterpret but that's not, okay so that's that is something that happens in talmud right so that's my question my question is in what in what way does he like because he's, he, where do he we draw the line? Is what you're saying, right? Because he's bringing so that as we were talking, right? There are levels, and there are certain things that the Achamim of the Talmud can touch or did touch that we don't touch anymore as a result of Galud. That's why I was saying in the middle of the discussion, we really do have to have a broader shiur on the actual mechanisms of this so that we can understand in what area are we allowed to still do this, right? We are absolutely allowed to still do it but not in the same way that the hachemim of the Talmud were, because there was a collective, accept not because it's not allowed, but essentially there was a collective acceptance at the close of the Talmud not to do it anymore by the majority of Israel, right? And that there was establishment in I also gave, I, we did the shiur in the opening of, of, of the Mishneh Torah of Arambam, where he touches on that as well, and why we don't do those kinds of things anymore. So what we don't do anymore today is we don't go to the psukim themselves and adjust the meaning of the words of, a psuki, of the psukim that was done by the Bedin, it was done by the Sanhedrin, it was done by the Achamim. We don't do that anymore today. What we do do today is we take the Talmud, which is the authority text, and we broaden those interpretations, right? So we will go to whatever it is that the Gemara says, and we will take the, the, the ideas of the Gemara and apply them in broad terms. Uh, and what I mean apply them broad terms, if I have to use them in terms of innovation. And understand how it is that I'm supposed to deal with something I've never seen. What does Hachamat Lub do with a dishwasher? What is he supposed to do with that? He's got to go to the Talmud and see, well, what things do I see like this there? And apply them to these circumstances and situations. So in a nutshell, what I would say is that much of the innovation that is done and can be done today is in the innovative and creative application of what is established in the Talmud. And there is still a tremendous amount of leeway for that, but people res- resist that, right? The many, many postkim resist doing that. Okay. With that, we will close tonight. Thank you everyone for spending the time and for focusing and uh, and engaging and asking and learning. And uh, I look forward to doing more with you, Bezrat Hashem, in the, in the coming shiurim for this, for this series. And thank you, Abi, for the introduction and for everyone who's here. Hashem, Yishmerechem, Hayachev.
1: Good night. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much. Really enjoyable.
2: Thank My you. Pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bet Midrash. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast player. Don't forget to rate and review. Have a wonderful day.